And when we do step into our moxie, I don't want it to be simply about us advocating for ourselves. I want it to be because we move into positions of power and we change the paradigm for women, men, children, trans folk, everybody who's coming behind us. Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru. I'm your host, Laura Tucker. Our guest today is Alexia Vernon. Alexia is the author of the book, Step Into Your Moxie, Amplify Your Voice, Visibility, and Influence in the World. Branded a moxie maven by President Obama's White House Office of Public Engagement for her unique and effective approach to women's empowerment, Alexia Vernon is a sought-after speaking and leadership coach to female and male executives, entrepreneurs, media personalities, and changemakers who want to spread their ideas, positively impact people's lives, grow their businesses, and advance their thought leadership. As I was editing this episode, it occurred to me that Free Your Inner Guru isn't always just a quote-unquote self-help podcast and that we may be crossing categories, something that I am excited to look at. And then when I think about my entire approach to life and what that's become about being integrated and being able to show up as one person, one human being in every aspect of our lives, why wouldn't it it be about more? Why wouldn't it be about social issues? Because we can't just be off in a silo reading self-help books, going to events and uh, and coaching, quite frankly, because unless we get out of that environment, the world doesn't change. So what we have here is a big conversation that centers around Alexia's brand new book, Step Into Your Moxie. And it goes from there and touches on many aspects of society and leadership. Whenever I reflect on how beneficial these conversations are for me personally, I realize that we all benefit from having bigger conversations all of the time. And so today I want to share with you a new initiative to turn the Free Your Inner Guru podcast into more than just a broadcast. I have a vision of a community of like-minded listeners who gather online in their own separate community, away from social media, away from Facebook. And once a month, we have live Q&A conversations. I will share more about this at the end of the episode. But right now, one of my inspirations is these conversations in and of themselves. So it is my pleasure to introduce you to Alexia Vernon and step into your moxie. Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru, Alexia. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. So Alexia, I want to let the um, audience know that in on a little secret. The little secret is that we've known each other for a little while. I've been in your perimeter and uh, went to one of your workshops in the spring. So when I had the opportunity to bring you on the podcast and read the book, Step into your moxie before its launch date. I jumped all over it. And uh, as I was reading it and seeing that you've included just about every story about yourself that I've heard you tell in various um, environments in the book, and given like it's called Step into Your Moxie and it's about speaking and sharing your story in the world. What's it like for you knowing now that when the book is released, that your story and stories are going to go out on an even to a wider audience? Exhilarating is the first word that comes to mind because a lot of these stories, as you've mentioned, have popped up in keynotes or workshops or retreats I've led. And I've gotten very comfortable in sharing those, even the ones that are some of the more difficult, or as I say in the book, bum bum biting moments. With that said, there's some of the ones that I've never shared before on a stage or with an audience that I experience the most sensation around because I haven't seen how an audience will react, but there's a deep knowing that everything that is in the book but they're by design and it has been wordsmithed. And there's that sense of surrender of 
being really proud and then trusting that the stories, the teachings will do what they're meant to do for those who read them. And so, and so what is that? What do you, what do you want your book and your broader message and your very um, sometimes intimate stories? What impact do you want them to have on person who's reading it? I believe that stories are the vehicle, whether we're hearing them because somebody's in front of us or we're watching them on a video or we're reading them. Stories are the way to see that all the cray-cray stuff we've been through, somebody else has been through too. And if we see how other people have reframed them and harnessed marrow out of them, it provides permission for us to be able to do the same, even if our own stories are a little bit different. My goal with the book is to embolden readers, primarily women, although I would love for some men to pick up the book as well, for them to have the confidence to be able to walk into any room or onto any stage, as I say in the book, speak up for themselves and the ideas that matter most and know that what they're saying more often than not is going to move people to take action. I'm, I'm so glad that you've brought the men into it because the audience for, for your inner guru is, is, is mixed. It's yes, I have a lot of women on, um, as guests, but I'm also finding that there's a lot of men who are very, um, receptive to the idea of conscious leadership, more intuitive living, a different way of navigating in the world. And, um, and particularly, there's an example that was very clear and present to me in my business life recently, and it had to do with um, the more masculine or traditional approach to selling versus a more feminine, as you characterize it in the book, um, approach. And this is a bit of a, a, this centers around energy as much as, as approach. Let's, let's get into that because I think that's where a lot of people are out of sorts perhaps with how they're being communicated to and how stories are sometimes used. Yes. There's a lot I would love to say about this. A chapter's worth. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. <laughs> and I bring up the example from the movie uh, Glengarry Glen Ross and Alec Baldwin who plays this character who's screaming at his men about like sell harder, sell faster, always be selling is, is the anthem here. Which when we think about sales, not that that's how all men sell by any means, but we often think that that's the way selling has to happen for it to be effective. And it is that usually unconscious belief that paralyzes a lot of us, particularly women from going into sales or stepping to the fullest expression of sales because we're terrified that that's how we're going to be perceived. What I introduce in the book is what I call a feminine reframe. And it, I want to be super clear. I don't say a female reframe because as you have suggested, there are a lot of men who are desirous of having a pathway forward for being able to integrate more of the feminine into their communication, into their leadership, into their living and being every day. And I call that counterpoint going for the holy yes. And what I mean by going for the holy yes is this idea that when we know that what we're offering can positively, perhaps radically improve people's lives, and that's not just a gimmick, like we actually really believe in what we are selling, that that ask when it's done with class, when it's done from a place of genuinely wanting to serve others, and that respects people's right to say no without making them feel guilty or scared of what will befall them because they have not said yes, that that can actually be a holy experience. I've experienced this personally when I think about the first years of my business and how disconnected from my selling voice I was. It was because I really felt like I had to come across as hard and confident and puff up and be this person that I simply wasn't. And so anytime I extended an offer, even if I really believed it was a good offer, there was always a disconnect between who showed up when I had been speaking previously or when I was having a conversation with someone previously and how I actually made the invitation. I always felt swarmy afterwards. And when I stopped trying to master formulas, 
stopped hunting for the perfect words and showed up as me and coached my way through. I simply asked questions. I mirrored back what I was hearing. I pointed out inconsistencies between what somebody was saying in the moment and what they might have said 10 minutes earlier they wanted for themselves. Suddenly, I closed like hotcakes. I felt better. And I was me. And that's what I really want for readers, whether they are male or female. Obviously, I introduced some tactical stuff that can amplify one's performance in all realms of speaking, but in this particular mm-hmm. context with respect to selling. But more than anything, as you say, it's an energetic shift that I'm inviting people into. When I left being a high school teacher and went to work in corporate America, um, I worked for a large company. I, I worked as a trainer where my job was and my responsibility was to bring the benefits of what was being um, promised during the selling cycle into the client space. And, uh, and then I saw and felt I could make a bigger difference, not just um, in my wallet or bank account, but to the company as a whole by joining the sales team. And I'm not kidding that at one of our training meetings, they played that clip of um, Alec Baldwin and the whole ABC always be closing. And although I did really well, I, I did super well. I was extremely successful in that selling role. There was that same disconnect. And I think it's really important because this is something that is through every culture, and not just personal development culture, corporate culture, um, health and wellness culture, ideas that people have about selling because they've inherited it. Um, when you work with people, how do you guide them to finding that what they're going to resonate? Is that going, you know, intuition comes up as a potential area that you use. And I know you also speak about that in the book. It's one of the reasons why, even if it would be convenient to move everything I've ever created to some kind of online hands-off experience, I love coaching and don't aspire to ever stop coaching. How I touch people obviously evolves so that it's scalable, but there's a lot we can teach. The book makes me super excited because it gives me the capacity to touch many more people than let's say what I can teach simply in a digital training program. But I love, even in a group program of mine, I have lengthy calls where people get to raise their hand and try languaging out. And I get to coach them in real time to find their vocabulary, whether that's on a speech, a pitch, a negotiation, anything else. Because as you say, there's a role for rules and then there's trusting our intuition about this is where we let the rules go and we go a little rogue and do it our way. And that's something I have learned to cultivate over the years, because for me, the way, one of the ways that my intuition speaks is through ahas. So I have oftentimes these little ahas of like, I just will see a question I'm supposed to ask someone. I, I have found when I try to find the right question, it never emerges, but I just am open. And I'm like, if there's a question here, let me find it. Or similarly, I will sometimes pick up that, for example, the throat, and it's not something I hear, but I'll just say, is there something hurting in your throat right now? This happened to me a few weeks ago when I was leading one of my retreats where someone said, yeah, my throat is sore and I know I'm not sick. Like what's going on? Um, We all have the ability to tap into our intuition, whether it's It comes in the form of an aha. It might be a physical experience where we get a tingling sensation in our tummy when something's up, or I've had people talk about like their knees will do something funky. But when we start to recognize A, how our intuition speaks to us, and then B, what it's trying to tell us, it will enhance our capacity to not feel like we have to get all of our answers from experts, which is really important to me. And I know that that's something that's important to you and to recognize our own wisdom within. 
Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that get in the way of using our gut or that inner knowing or inner voice as your guide. And you call, you have the critic, the cop and the cheerleader. Let's, let's talk about those three characters that we all, that all inhabit our very busy minds. You bet. As you have suggested, I believe that at every given moment, we have one typically of three voices that is holding a microphone in our head. The voice of the critic is one that probably many of us are familiar with because she gets discussed a lot. The voice of the critic will say things like, you're not smart enough, you're not funny enough, you're not experienced enough, you're not something, fill in the blank, enough. However, that's not the only voice that can self-sabotage. There's also the voice of the cop. And as cops are wont to do, when we have that voice going on, it creates a dichotomy between two situations. There's the right thing to do. There's the wrong thing to do. There's one way to speak your truth. And if you don't do that, then that means you're paralyzed and you are disconnected from your voice. And the problem when we allow the cop voice to hold the microphone in our heads is that usually we stay stuck because neither choice feels very good. We don't know how to navigate the discomfort between those choices and actually choose something that is often in the gray underutilized space between those two outlying poles. The third voice is the voice of the cheerleader. And at first the cheerleader sounds amazing because she'll say things like, it's totally cool if you stay up uh, writing your book through the middle of the night and then get up the next morning, you take your kiddo to school and you've done all this on like two hours sleep and then you record a bunch of interviews. You've got retirement 30 years from now to rest and catch up on sleep and self-care. And I kid somewhat, but a lot of people, particularly women, are very adept at this raw, raw voice that is masking a deep need underneath for support, for delegation, for self-care. And when we allow the cheerleader voice to go on and on and on, usually we don't make as big of an impact as we want because we operate as a bit of a lone ranger. We get tired, we get sick, we burn out, we quit. And that's why early on in the book, I talk about these voices because if we want to talk about our outer communication, we have to look at what's the communication we're doing with ourselves because it's going to start a chain reaction for all of our other communication. And I give folks, the invitation to bring in a fourth voice to the mental menagerie, if you will, which is the voice of the coach. And the voice of the coach is kind, compassionate, and above all, she's curious. So if you have the voice of the critic going on, the voice of the coach might ask a question like, is there another truth you could be telling right now? When's a time where you are a rock star to remind you of your inherent worthiness? The voice of the coach to the cop might ask a question like, what is a third, a fourth, a fifth possibility that you could take advantage of to get you out of that dichotomy thinking? To the cheerleader, the voice of the coach is going to say things or ask because she's inherently curious and asks questions. So she's going to ask things like, who can you ask for support? What can you move to the next quarter? What's keeping you busy and out of your big? And when we can first and foremost say, when I'm triggered, when I'm anxious, this is the voice I go to, meaning critic, cop, cheerleader, and then really have one succinct coach question to ask each time that other voice pops up, rather than trying to silence our self-talk, which never works, it allows us to make it a dialogue and reclaim the role of protagonist in that story that's happening on a moment-to-moment -moment basis in our heads. With this symphony of voices, the critic, the cop, the cheerleader, and I, as I'm sure the vast majority of, of uh, readers and people who are hearing this will identify all three voices. The one that surprised me was my cheerleader voice. Very easy to, uh, like, I know my critic well. My critic has been with me since day, you know, one, but, and the cop was more familiar, but this idea that, you know, when, when you're trying to do big things and you're getting ready to make big steps out of your comfort zone and you're dealing with that dynamic of the energy around that, that always stirs stuff up, 
It's almost like when I was thinking about it, it's almost like you need a certain amount of cheerleader to get yourself out of there. But at some point it's unsustainable because to me, it felt like if you, if you stay in that mode too much, you're going to miss some of your intuition. You're going to, it's almost like you're, you're surfing at the, at the surface. Yeah, that it's important to ask those questions to get to the source, the source of the pain points and what's out of alignment, and also the source of desire and why. What is it that you really want for yourself? What is it that you want for your business or your career? What is it that you want for your family, for your community? What's the legacy that you want to leave behind? Like it all comes back to that stuff. Many wise people who've come before me have said that the way to get over your fear is to have a why that's bigger than your fear. And I believe that totally, that in those moments where the critic is, is loud or the cop is loud or the cheerleader is loud, it's always coming back to fear. And if we're able to name for ourselves, like if I spoke my truth, this is what I'm really scared of. And it's actually an exercise in the first chapter, then what would happen? And name it. And then what would happen and name that. And if we keep naming those things, we realize that almost everything is survivable. And if you're someone who skews a little macabre and you're like, but I might die, like that's the end result. Well, then you'll be at peace then too, won't you? And I'm not trying to be glib, but when we start to realize the worst possible outcome, then it allows us to release it, to say, okay, that could happen but it's not the most likely outcome that's going to happen. And if we're always constantly replaying that worst possible scenario, we've actually lived it dozens of times rather than just once if it actually did happen. It reminds me of, um, well, when you and I first crossed paths and I was starting to tell my story in public and my my fear around the worst case scenario, which for me at that time looked and sounded like if I go and I start talking about what my experience was and is, I might lose the credibility that I feel that I need to ABC. And ABC was 100%, you know, build my reputation back here in Toronto, grow my coaching business after shutting down my consulting business. And that is a, that was big fear that the reaction can be quite opposite to what you expect. What would happen? And I know you've worked way through this, but at the time I would have been curious if you'd had that question, what would happen if the story I'm most terrified of telling is the thing that will build my business, that will build my credibility? And that is usually what happens. If that's what stepping into your moxie requires is this, you know, transparency and, and sharing at that gut and soul level, that can feel really dangerous. Hmm. How have you navigated that? For me in this season of life, presentations are not the thing that are inherently triggering. I don't want to make light of that because I did spend almost the first 30 years of my life having to navigate through the sensation that would come up for me that felt debilitating whenever I would give a speech. I now know that that's why I'm a really good speaking coach is because I can't, I, I don't just dole out advice that's worked for clients. It's everything that I've had to practice and continue to use so that I stay in a place of empowerment when I speak. I want to be super honest that where I still experience a fair amount of sensation is stepping into daring conversations in situations where stakes are high, where emotions can run high, particularly within my family. So I talk about in the book that the first time I can remember stepping into my moxie, which I don't know if I ever called it this, Laura, but when you talked about intuition today, I also realized that this is the first moment I ever can remember having an intuitive hit and taking action on it. So it's the same moment mm. was when I made a promise to a family member to keep the secret that he was sexually abusing me and made the decision, even though it felt incredibly uncomfortable to speak up and tell my parents. And I was four years old at the time. So it's not like I had a long history of speaking up about anything, 
but I did have that deep intuitive knowing in my stomach that if I don't speak up, the consequences will be worse for myself than the consequences, which I also had a keen sense around because the person who was committing these acts said, you'll never see me again. It will destroy our family. And I had a sense that he might be right. And in fact, he was, I mean, that the outcome was serious, but I followed that intuitive hit and it probably changed the trajectory of the rest of my life for the better because it never happened again. While a lot of people in my family weren't ready for that difficult information, there were some people, I give my mom as an example, my hero, um, who made sure that it never happened again, who got me the best treatment, who was always that advocate for me when that story would start to take on more power than I wanted it to in my life. And what I know with absolute certainty is that that moment didn't mean that I would spend the rest of my life stepping into my moxie because as I've shared, a lot of my life was that on and off again relationship. I didn't always want that level of responsibility, that outcome. But I would recognize the intuition even if I didn't take action on it. Mm. And so in those moments that, and we all have them, whatever that thing is that just feels so scary, so difficult, we know what we want to do, but we doubt our ability to do it. Or we say, I could do it, but I don't know if I'm comfortable with that outcome, is to get really real and ask that question. What's the outcome that I want to have happen? And what's my role in showing up and intending on that outcome without being attached to that actually being what happens? And that's what, comes, that's what integrity is all about. Integrity means we operate, and a big piece of operating is our communication, interpersonal or public, from a place that allows our values to be expressed. And it doesn't mean, to go back to the cop voice, that there's only one way to do it. What's the way that feels like we can be in our integrity and then honors where we are in this particular moment? Because I will hear from a lot of folks, and I'm very cognizant of this, that I didn't speak up for myself. And I don't want anyone to feel guilt or shame or embarrassment about what choice they made. So speaking your mo stepping into your moxie doesn't mean there's one paradigm for how to do that. But maybe what it means is that you have a conversation with your child about how to speak up if anyone touches them inappropriately or you teach consent. That might be your way. Maybe it means that when you see somebody in your professional environment who's making a derogatory comment about someone based on gender, sex, race, class, or anything else, that you compassionately call that out. And that you don't berate yourself in those moments for what you didn't say, or for what you did say that didn't, that maybe came out with more anger than you intended, or didn't have the impact that you intended. Because when we replay a story that our communication wasn't enough, we usually keep ourselves stuck from amplifying our communication and improving it the next time around. Or are you just talking about me? Or are you talking about everybody else? I thought <laughs> I was talking about me. <laughs> I, I um, you know, when you said about the, the anger, guilt, and shame, that's definitely an area that of a range of emotions that I experienced. And I think a lot of people who feel compelled to share their stories have experienced it in some way. And now that I, I don't envy anyone the experience, especially when you're in it, because I've been there. I have walked that very dark and lonely um, path. But what I would say is to anyone who might feel like they might still be there or they're just getting up to that ridge of, you know, the cliff and climbing back up out of it. It's worth it for what comes on the other side. And that, you know, there are a bunch of difficult or as you also call them daring conversations and that it is a journey of response, taking responsibility, like clean personal responsibility, not over blaming, not over shaming 
paying attention, um, but also being able to emerge from it with some gifts. Yes. Um, let's talk about some of the gifts of these um, uh, bum bum or <laughs> ass biting moments. <laughs> and some people might know it as a defining moment too. There's different, like these, these moments that really cut us to our core and then we can ultimately learn and grow from. Let's talk about some of those gifts. And it's funny because while writing this chapter, this could have been a 50 page chapter. I mean, I, I wouldn't have been allowed to do that, fortunately. So it was really hard to almost limit the amount of gifts that I talked about because the gifts of speaking your truth are endless. <laughs> they include um, cultivating your resilience. To me, that's one of the biggest ones, knowing that if I could survive this, I could survive anything. And there's been some moments in my life, ones I chose not to talk about in the book, surrounded or about my family, because I didn't want this to be about them. I really wanted it to be about me. Mm-hmm. The conversations I had that the worst outcome I envisioned kind of did happen, even if I felt like I was in my integrity. And at the moment, I just remember feeling, and I'm sure we've all had that, like, I think I'm going to combust into a million particles. And on the other side, recognizing, dang, girl, like, you did what you set out to do. It may not have had the impact, but you are more powerful than you could possibly imagine. And while there are plenty of moments where I don't remember that, you know, I get triggered like anyone else, um, that sense of resilience that everything is survivable, at my core, I know that even in the moments where I feel tested. That has been a huge gift. And that is a gift, of course, that's available to all of us. Um, Another one is increasing our capacity to ask for help. So in a lot of those moments, we tend to want to go inside and figure it all out ourselves or hide. And yet when we surrender and we say, I need support from my loved ones, from a friend, from a coach, from somebody, and we allow ourselves to receive, oftentimes it can rewire us to ask for help before we feel like we are on the ground not sure how we're going to get back up again to prevent us from being that depleted in the future. Another one to highlight is empathy. I've been asked before, and I'm sure you've been asked this question, like, what do you think is your greatest gift? Or what do you think is your most beautiful feature? And my answer is always my capacity to forgive. Mm. I can forgive anything. And that's not my wiring at all. Like I was used to be a very bitter, I would use the word vindictive person. Even as a kid, you cross me, even though I was shy and introverted, like I would have all mean, nasty thoughts about one day karma's going to get you. (laughs) And of course, it's the old expression. It's like swallowing poison and wondering why didn't my neighbor suffer? Why did I? (laughs) And so a big piece of those bum bum biting moments is asking who are we consciously or unconsciously blaming for our current situation. Sometimes that's us, but usually it's also other people if we're really honest. And when we do the deeper work to forgive them and to cut that energetic cord that's keeping us stuck to them, Mm -hmm. usually then it supports us to be more forgiving in the minutia of every day. Somebody cuts us off the road or somebody says no to us about something that we made a vulnerable ask around. And that to me is also really liberating to know that it's not about forgetting or letting someone off the hook, but it means I am not going to allow my identity to be enmeshed in theirs. Mm. I'm wondering, um, and I almost want to be assumptive here because I know your husband is Hawaiian. You're making me think of the Ho'oponopono. So given that you're nodding and smiling right now, I'm going to share with you that when I first learned of the Ho'oponopono, which is 
at its most simplest form, um, a, a forgiveness meditation that does exactly what you just described. It helps to cut the energetic cords and, and heal. When I first heard of it, it was now coming up on 10 years ago, let's say. And I always thought, I always I have great resonance with Hawaii, like a lot of us do, but there was something about the Ho'oponopono. And over the course of the last 10 years, during um, my varying stages of relationship with meditation and things that people might characterize as either esoteric or woo, the Ho'oponopono comes in and out of my life. And I will forget about it for months, if not years at a time, and then it will come back to me. And um, have you, I'm actually considering getting it tattooed mm -hmm. on my arm here to bring it present every day. What, um, if you've got some experience with that, I'd love to hear it. Um, and even any other tools of forgiveness, because if I've learned anything from my journey, and I'm sure it's the same for you, is that the forgiveness, it sounds like such a cliche, but it's true. The forgiveness is for you. It's not for the, it's always for you. And that's not that you're approaching it from a self-serving, um, it won't work <laughs> if, you're, if you're doing it because this is for me. At least it's a start to raise your flag and say, I'm going to do something for me and it's going to be forgive this. But it truly is once you've crossed that threshold in sometimes the most unexpected moment of time, forgive the, the release of forgiveness is truly for the forgiver. It's interesting that you brought up Steve because I actually read about Ho'oponopono and told him about it. He <laughs> was like, nobody in my family has ever talked about this, even though he's from Hawaii, grew up in Kauai. But now he, he knows what it is. And I can't remember exactly when I learned about this practice, but I have a sense it was right around the time uh, I was doing volunteer work with sex offenders. And the timing couldn't have been more perfect because there is nothing like being a survivor of sexual abuse. And then somewhat because the universe just threw some strange opportunities my way. I thought I was signing up to work with sexual abuse survivors. There was actually a need volunteer wise. Imagine that in a nonprofit to work with the sex offenders and something just spoke to me and said, I need to work with them. I actually think I can help. And I actually think I need this too. So I promise I'll get back to Ho'oponopono in a minute. But I remember, and I didn't do it for a long period of time, because shortly thereafter, I started thinking I want a child, and I knew I couldn't be in that energy and approach motherhood and be whole, to be completely honest. But in the maybe six months, four to six months where I did that work with men who are transitioning back into the community after serving their time, and to be super clear, there was a barometer of sex offense that was encompassed there. There were people who were older teenagers having consensual sex who had been tried um, with younger teenagers. There had been those who had molested and there had been those who had raped women. So there was all kinds, but holding space for men to share their stories because they'd already been penalized. So at this point they couldn't be retried, but in many cases it was the first time they ever felt like they could acknowledge and take responsibility for what they did without fear of going to jail and being a witness to that and seeing, um, so hearing atrocities, but also hearing deep regret that didn't feel contrived because I was a volunteer. There was like no, there was nothing to gain from that. And then asking me questions, I feel myself getting incredibly choked up about what impact abuse had on my life and them understanding deeply for the first time what they did and the impact it made that gave me permission to forgive both the person in my life who had made those choices, but also the other people who had been complicit in not acknowledging my experience or getting that person help. And I, it's funny that I can't remember specifically Ho'oponopono when I learned about it, but I want to, I feel like it was during that time. And so for me personally, so for those who are like, what are you talking about, Alexia, Lex, um, 
and Laura, there are a few key phrases and, you know, I, I don't put myself out there as um, a leader who uses this as a training tool. It's much more of a personal tool, but the phrases can be used in any order. The order that I like to use them is, I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. And I bring to mind, I close my eyes, somebody that I'm trying to cut that energetic cord with. So it might've been the person who committed my abuse. It might've been somebody else who, um, like I said, was complicit in that experience. Or it could be someone who just cut me off the road that I'm thinking about six hours later. And I'm like, seriously, Lex? Like, why are you still thinking about this person? I will picture them surrounded in white light. And as I breathe, I will imagine love emanating from my heart to theirs and back and forth. And I will imagine that whatever cord is there, and usually, because I'm, I'm a chakra person, um, I'll often picture that cord from like the heart to their heart being cut. And then saying those words over and over as I breathe. I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. For like five minutes at a time. And I want to interject here because you may be thinking, are you kidding? Why are you taking responsibility or why are you apologizing for someone who might have committed an act to you? I'm not saying I'm sorry, like I caused this. It's really an act of self-forgiveness. I'm sorry that I've been holding on to this and I'm forgiving you, which is for me always code of I'm releasing you. I'm releasing this experience. And I hope that I'm also in some way energetically, and this is where it comes back to the Hawaiian tradition, allowing you to unhook from whatever you're carrying around about this so that you don't reoffend, so that you don't carry that toxicity into your next conversation. If we're going to bring it back around to story and stepping into our, our wisdom and strength and moxie, if, as, you move, as you move into that energy there is a lot of releasing to do because there are difficult conversations. There are boundaries to put in around it. There are, you know, remembering to take a breath and finding the compassion and empathy in it. So I think it's a very appropriate tool to support yourself, but also know that um, karmically, energetically, it's about more than just you. Yes. And that's where a lot of the juicy work of transitioning from doing the work on ourselves or doing the work with our clients moves. I find for a lot of folks too, I want to get on stage and I want to speak and I want to share this with a larger audience because if I just keep it to myself, I'm denying others the possibility of the impact I can make. And it requires, um, being willing, willing to um, be that vulnerable, mm-hmm. which means that like in vulnerability, there's a tremendous amount of strength. Yes. And the beauty when we have done our own work and we're getting up and we're speaking and we're being visible, whether that's a stage, whether that's a Facebook live, whether that's a podcast interview, is that is the greatest gift I believe we can give any audience is the opportunity to see us standing in our truth unapologetically and doing it in a way that it's not actually about our healing or our catharsis, but we're doing it in service of them. We are telling our truth because we're advancing a particular idea and our truth is necessary to move that idea for our audience. Can you come up with an example and maybe it's from one of your own stories where you had to go through that transition from relating a story and it's more about you versus sharing the story where it's, it's about the receiver. Yes. And you were in the room one of the first times I ever told the story oh. and some weird stuff happened right as I finished the story. So when I talked about postpartum depression, and it's a story that I told in great detail in the book, that actually is the story in the bum bum biting chapter. And I'm a few years removed from it now. And I told it in smaller workshops or with a client, um, bits and pieces. And I always felt like this is a story I'm supposed to tell 
but I don't know what the real purpose is if it's not, let's say, to other women who've had postpartum depression or to, let's say, new mothers who I want to share some of the lessons I learned about trying to control everything about the birth experience and how that created a situation when my birth plan went completely off plan for deep disappointment and sadness and ultimately postpartum depression. But when I started to ask, how was this story happening for me and not to me? And that's something we have as a gift to all of us in any moment. How is this experience or how is this story happening for me and rather than to me? And it's usually not to teach us something specific about that experience. So for me, postpartum, it wasn't about teaching me what postpartum is. It was teaching me lessons about my voice. Um, you know, it's interesting when we have one of those bum bum biting moments when we're in a really good place. Like when I had my daughter, it was one of my favorite years of my business. I was better about self-care than I've probably ever been at any point in my life. My partner and I were in a great way. Like everything was really good and it came and it shook me up a little bit. And the, one of the, there are several, but one of the big takeaways was my capacity to make a catastrophe out of everything, particularly when I felt really uncomfortable, how to want to throw in the towel and give up and feel like I can't do this. That for me was a lot of my critic self-talk. I can't handle this alone. And so when I made that realization, and then I was able to bring it into presentations or workshops and retreats and transition out of that story by asking questions like, have you ever had one of those moments where you felt so disconnected from your voice that you thought to yourself, who am I to be dishing out advice to other people about how to live, how to build their business, how to grow their careers when I am so completely effed up. I don't think I said that word, but like in terms of my own relationship to my voice right now. And one of the first times I told the story on state or, or at, at my live event, that three-day event, I lost my voice literally at the end of it. Now, to be fair, I was nursing an upper respiratory infection. Everyone in my family had been sick, but none of them got laryngitis with that. Just you. <laughs> right at the end of that story, like the voice just disappeared. And as Laura knows, because she had to listen to me with just a little, little tiny voice the rest of the weekend. Like that for me was honestly one of my biggest fears. What happens if I ever get laryngitis while leading, not just a speech, because you can kind of muck your way through 40 minutes, but like a big event. And there it was, right when I had just finished a story about not that subject, but that idea of how do you shift from seeing something happening to you as something happening for you. And it was a huge weekend because I realized like my voice is about voice, but there's a lot of different ways I can communicate rather than my colorful voice. If I'm to be super honest, one of my biggest fears when that happened was is this, is this weekend going to have the impact I want on the lives of the people who are there? Are they going to want to continue to work with, you know, all that stuff? So I had to surrender what any of my goals were monetary and just show up at 100% and give in really creative ways, whether it was stepping back and allowing other people who were in my mastermind to step up and lead more activities than I had designed learning about my vocal instrument and really working to access my voice from the depths of my gut rather than relying too much on the voice, you know, in my throat that just wasn't there. And through that surrender, the event wound up being financially more successful than we had envisioned prior to that incident happening and us realigning what our goals were in terms of people moving on to work with us in the months afterwards. <laughs> it wound up. Um, also deepening my relationships with a lot of people who were there mm -hmm. because I think I'm a pretty vulnerable person, but there's nothing more vulnerable than holding space for people over three days talking about voice and literally not having one of your own. It was quite remarkable. I hadn't even thought of that since then. Um, but what I do recall was 
that it became um, a truly a group experience that the people who were able to step up and um, sub in for you were almost, and I'm saying almost because you're pretty awesome. I happen to think you are, I happen to know, (laughs) but they were more awesome. Mm -hmm. And having, you know, I think anytime something shows up in the body, because there's so much wisdom there, that's where our intuition and inner guru and memories and physiology and generations of DNA live. But it also created this opportunity in a very unusual way for your the people you were leading to demonstrate the leader that you are. Mm. When people that you're coaching are able to step into your space and maybe sometimes even beyond, it's a testament to that work, don't you think? Absolutely. Rather than it being about the guru at the front of the room, 100% responsible in air quotes now, control, um, pitching, selling, closing, NLPing, manipulating. (laughs) Rather than it being about that kind of model, which I know you don't embrace, which is why I spend time in your circles. Um, But this is, it's a, it's a critical, it's a beautiful example of when you're truly creating space for others to step into their moxie, then what they do is the best testimonial or testament to the power of that, of, of your message. It was awesome in many moments to step back and to see this group of women who had been together over the course of nine months collectively come together and make plans for what we would do, particularly one morning when I really had nothing resembling a voice, how they would take over the curriculum, what they would do differently. And then to see over the course of the weekend, because, and you may have felt this, a lot more happened at the tables than I had anticipated because I knew vocally what my stamina was. I could set up things, but I couldn't do as much in front of the whole group by myself as I had designed and I wanted everyone to still get those practical experiences. So we did a lot more at the tables, which meant the table leaders, the women I was talking about in the mastermind got to step up more. So being a fly and observing them being able to step into their moxie as facilitators in bigger ways reminded me of why we do this work. We don't do this work to fill our bank accounts. We don't do this work to get the rush of being in front of a room. I believe we develop leaders because we want to develop more leaders and we want them to develop more leaders. So seeing that leadership evolution for people was magical. It brings up something I've got on my notes here. I wanted to, um, I wanted to talk to you about women supporting women, Mm -hmm. something that, um, a lesson in life that took me a very long time to learn um, about, and the podcast has become a wonderful environment for me to showcase other people, which two, three years ago, I, I wouldn't have had the bandwidth for that. And, you know, to, to do it without feeling somehow like I was giving my power away. Um, and, and so this idea of, women in leadership and how we can step into our true power and embrace still a feminine style of leadership compared to a lot of what we see going on in the world today, which is old paradigms of what leaders look like. I really hope that as we think about a lot of the movements that are transpiring, in many cases being catalyzed and led by women, whether we're thinking about hashtag Me Too movement, whether we're thinking about Time's Up, you know, millions of women around the world have spoken up over the last couple of years on behalf of themselves and on behalf of the rights of others, have showed up to marches and protests, have told their stories on social media. And yet it is one thing to show up to a march or to broadcast your views with an Instagram story. And it's an entirely different thing 
to actually believe you possess the power and ability to consistently walk into any room or onto any stage and speak up for yourself and the ideas and issues that matter most to you. And when we do step into our moxie, I don't want it to be simply about us advocating for ourselves. I want it to be because we move into positions of power and we change the paradigm for women, men, children, trans folk, everybody who's coming behind us. It's one of the areas where I think men, truthfully, have got it going on a little bit more than we do. And what I mean by that is, you know, for the most part, and, you know, I'm trafficking in some stereotypes here, so please excuse me for that. But overall, I've seen, especially with all of the work that I do in businesses, that when guys are smoking hot in their careers and they're making bank and they're moving up the, the ladder and they see other guys a few steps ahead of them, they don't usually think to themselves like, oh crap, if he got there, then that means I can't do it. It's like, oh no, if he did it, awesome. That means I can make it happen as well, right on. And like, let me bring my bros in and let's all do it together. Not to say that there's there's not some problems with that thinking and that behavior. I've seen it time and time again, not only in corporate, quite often in the entrepreneurial thought leader space particularly with women who have very adjacent businesses serving similar communities. This sense of, if I champion her, then my audience is going to get confused or it means that there's not enough for me. Rather than saying to ourselves, if she can do it, so can I. And yes, we know that there's not gender parity in any industry, Yet that doesn't mean that it's only institutionalized problems. It's also moment-to-moment cultural problems that we're playing into that's playing a role. Like if she is doing something that's amazing, how can I support her? How can I elevate her? Because it's not taking anything away from me. And if and when we find that all of the seats at a table are taken, like let's go sit at a new table and invite other amazing people to sit at that table with us. It speaks to um, abundance. It's it's almost a great example of an abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset. So competition and scarcity um, might be things that are holding us back because maybe we did grow up with competition. Maybe opportunities have felt scarce. What do you think about that? I love where you started in terms of this abundance versus scarcity. And I'm always cognizant that the personal is political, right? So there, there is this stuff that we do that is a response to how we've been socialized, to what our institutions are saying to us. And I believe that it's ultimately about taking personal responsibility for what we can change and never forgetting the systems that are in play that have created our power and our privilege or our lack of power or our lack of privilege and trying to find the ways that we can impact both simultaneously. And when I think about abundance, there's the individual level and then there is making sure that we are elevating voices also that often haven't had the opportunity to be elevated. So I've had clients who have come to me and said, I applied to speak at this thing and I'm pretty sure I didn't get picked because I'm a white woman with a lot of privilege and the opportunity was given to somebody else. And I understand that feeling that is shared privately with me. And yet my instinct is is always that voice might have been needed more. There are no shortage of opportunities where if we have power, if we have privilege, we can go speak. But we need to shake up. And I know I'm going in a slightly different direction here than maybe what you anticipated. But, you know, I would be thrilled if somebody who did not have a lot of the privileges afforded to me, who might have come from a very different situation, who might be a woman of color, Um, might be a member of the LGBT community, writes her own version of Step Into Your Moxie through her lens. That does not discredit my book because 
if somebody reads my book, they're probably going to read another book on the subject. I think about the same thing all the time when I look at my clients. They're not only going to coach with me. If somebody's really serious about improving their performance, they're going to work with other coaches. That's a good thing. When we elevate one another's work, we deepen the respect for the work itself. Wow, that was huge. I'm just going to take a moment because I need to formulate and then bring us into the close. The joys sometimes of intuitive interviewing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Lex, I think that you and your book are a great example of sharing your wisdom so that other people can empower themselves and by adding your voice to what is out there as far as how to be a leader, how to have a voice, um, how to step forward and use your story in a constructive way lands very elegantly in the middle of what you just said as positive proof of the concept of sharing is not just for your own means or gains. Um, it, it will lead to means and gains, but it's this idea of doing this in service for, of others is what the thread that is, it, I think when I go back and listen to the episode, this is what is, is drawing through the entire, um, the thread of this conversation. Before we wrap up, um, if somebody were to read your book and feel like, okay, it's time. It's time for me to start taking those first steps. What would you like to highlight for them right now as they're listening to us here? One of the things that has always been hard about running a business that is service-based, that offers premium programs has been how do I make these principles accessible and affordable to a larger audience? And so I love that the book is a, a, a way to be able to not only do the mindset stuff, not only be inspired, but I really did try to integrate very practical tools that people can read, they can take action on. In the book, at the end of chapters, we have a link to downloadable resources that are free that people can grab to take those principles. And so that, you know, it's not about a sales thing. It's a, if this is speaking to you and you want more, I'm so proud of this book because it feels like it's what I want every person to be able to know and do to reclaim their voice and use it in the world in whatever way that they want. The second invitation is for those who are listening who say, I know what I've lived through and been through and what I've worked on is because I'm meant to inspire others with that message. To remember that if you know that your ideas can positively, perhaps radically improve people's lives, businesses, careers, health, whatever it is, that it's not a response, excuse me, it's not an opportunity. It is a responsibility to get on stage and speak and step into your thought leadership. And especially if you might feel like somebody else is already saying it, they're not seeing it your way. They don't have your story. They don't ask questions the same way. It means that there's a demand for your message because people are speaking about it. There is an audience and that audience needs to hear from lots of different people on that subject. Thank you for that on behalf of my listeners, because I think that's so important for people to to feel like if they want to contribute in that way, there is room for everyone. Yes. Um, I want to thank you very much for your time um, coming on here to be with me and to explore the, the, the wide range and the depth of your own story and for sharing so generously as you always do. For anyone um, who wants, there will be links in the show notes back over to the book and uh, also to a uh, speaker video series, the Hotshot speaker video series um, will be there. So you can, do you want to tell us a little bit about that series? Sure. 
for those who are saying, yes, I recognize I want to get on stage and speak and I want to do it in a way that positively impacts people's lives. I love this evergreen video series because it shows you how to start to identify the ideas that you want to spread, connect them with your stories, move through any discomfort that might be coming up around visibility and get out there and do it. Oh, thanks very much. So that will all be there for you. And once again, Lex, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story and, uh, and allowing free your inner guru into your life and your community. And I'm super excited to receive my copy when it uh, releases from Amazon <laughs> um, the week that this will be published. So by the time you all are listening, that book will probably already be in my mailbox. So I want to encourage you to get yours. Um, I read the advanced copy of it and uh, it's, I recommend it with, without hesitation. Thanks very much, Lex. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for listening. I know you have a ton of choice where you receive your inspiration and information and endeavor each time to bring you the highest quality experience and biggest conversation possible. You will find links in the show notes to everything Alexia and I mentioned online, her book and her hotshot speaker series, as well as links to her social media accounts. You'll also find for the first time something I'm very excited to announce to you, the launch of the new Free Your Inner Guru Patreon community. Patreon is a website where creators of things like podcasts can receive support directly from their audience without having to go the route of sponsorships and advertisements. I know I prefer my podcast that I listen to without the clutter of the ads, and that's gone a long way to informing my decision to go that route. But there's something more, something bigger. Patreon is also a website where Artists can create communities and tiers of rewards for people becoming their patrons. Right now, to get us started, there are three tiers. When you check them out, you'll see one is, yes, I support you, Laura, and the Free Your Inner Guru podcast. Nothing more. You receive tons of gratitude from me. The second and the third tier, however, add on an online community where you'll be able to engage with each other and me as well as receive updates and bonus content as I create it. The top level at this point, which is only $10 a month, is access to all of that plus a live Q&A each month starting in November. During these Q&As, it will be exactly that, driven by questions from the listeners. Occasionally, I will bring on guests and we can continue the big conversations out into more than just the podcast being a one-way broadcast. I'm super excited about this and looking forward to taking the Free Your Inner Guru podcast and turning it into a community and a movement where we all step up, embrace our voice, and have bigger conversations because the bigger the conversation, the bigger the ideas, the bigger the impact. So follow the link over to patreon.com slash Laura Tucker or lauratucker.com slash support takes you to the same place where you can check it all out in detail. And until next time, I'm Laura Tucker signing off for Free Your Inner Guru.